They turn the fan off before I start preaching so I don't go too long. You do not want a preacher too comfortable. Um, Otherwise, who knows how long we could be here this morning. We are going to be beginning a series on the Gospel of Mark. Um, So that's where we're going to lead in today. What we're going to ask at the end of the service is that you would commit to reading through Mark with us between now and the start of Easter. That you would kind of take this as an opportunity to say, let me go back and reread the gospel as Mark tells it. What happened in the person of Jesus? So we're going to be looking at that this morning as a chance to make sure that we are following the person of Jesus and not a hybrid image of our own creation. My kids were all given compasses. Uh, for their birthday or for Christmas this last year from grandma. They're giving compasses. But the funny thing about it is, is when you're using a compass, if you don't use it correctly, if you simply stare down at the face while you try to walk, two things will happen. One, you will walk into people or walk into the pool. And two, you will slowly get more and more off course. Because the way you use a compass is you don't just fixate on the compass. You look at the compass and then pick which is correctly calibrated to the direction you want to go. You look at it, and on the fancier compasses, there'll even be a line to have your eye, and you'll say, that tree, one or two kilometers away, that's where I need to be headed. Because if you don't do that, if you simply take a moment-by-moment inventory of what's going on, you could be so concerned with going the right way in the present that you could actually get off course. There is need to fix your eyes on the horizon and say, where does God want me to go next? What is it that God wants me to next accomplish? Because right now our lives can often be dominated by what one author has called the tyranny of the urgent. That is uh, trying to make sure that we've got water for today, trying to make sure that we have power or food for today, getting our cell phone charged, one series of momentary obligations after another, and in such a way that we will miss out on some of the most important things that God would want us to be accomplishing next. Uh-oh, this went off here. Let me double check. Maybe we wiggled it wrong. Is that just because the power went off? All right, then. Let's try it again then. I don't know if it likes the generator. All right, so we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 1, because that's a good place to begin. And give me just one second as you bring it up on your phone or your Bible. Here we go. All right. All right. So here we go. I'm going to go ahead and put up for those of you that have not yet signed up. If I know that trans, uh, staying, you know, it's hard to predict what your schedule will be or your work schedule. So if you would like to sign up for our podcast and follow the messages when you're not here, you can go to udo.world slash listen. That's got links. It's got a recommended app you can use for Android. For those of you iPhone users, uh, it's also in the iTunes store. You can just look up Terezi Christian Church so that you can follow along this Easter. Here we go. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Now, I need to tell you here that in the Greek, this is a terrible beginning because Mark is missing a verb. Um, There's just some bad grammar right from the start, and your English teacher would not be happy with this if Mark turned it in. 
Mark has a, be- has a weird beginning. It's got all kinds of places where Mark says what he wants to say, but it is not, technically speaking, great Greek. It's almost as if Mark is writing in a rushed style, or maybe that Mark is writing in a way that at least intends to shock us just a little bit. It begins by saying, the beginning of the gospel. The beginning, of course, is referring to this book that Mark is writing, but perhaps as Mark is saying this, we need to think about how books were circulated in the first century. Okay, so going back a few, a few thousand years ago, nobody could read. Nobody could read, and nobody thought about reading. People did not think about themselves as not being able to read, because nobody did it. Uh, scribes did it. They had special magic powers. And so here's how it worked. If I wanted to send a message to Pastor Mark, I would go get a scribe, and he'd have some magic powers. I would tell him what I want to say. And he would put it in that special code. That code would be carried to another scribe who would retranslate it back into a performance. And so the other guy on the other end would be learning to say, Dear Pastor Mark, would say it with all the right inflection. And so he would go and Mark would hear a person saying it out loud because there's a good chance that Mark also cannot read. And so the scribe would have to reinterpret it. That's how WhatsApp messages originally worked, right? You had to say something. It was then written down. It was carried across the empire. It was rememorized and then performed for somebody else. And so in the early days of the gospel, the apostles news that Jesus had taught them, proclaiming the story of his life, his death, and his resurrection. They are proclaiming it, but entirely from memory. When they quote the book of Isaiah, it's because they have it memorized. They are not carrying around a 20 kg scroll with them wherever they go and rolling it out to Isaiah and saying, now what was that verse again? It's all memorized. All the words of Jesus that they deliver would have been memorized. And in fact, the gospel of Mark delivered in a single setting, one hour and 30 minutes from start to finish, if you perform it live, like a really good movie length. So the gospel is written because as the apostles are getting older, they had been delivering the gospel live, but there became a fear that other people would take the gospel and make it into something else. That they would begin to take bits and pieces of the gospel and reassemble it into something that was not what Jesus said or intended. And so this, the gospel of Mark, as the tradition tells us, it comes from the memoirs of Peter as he is getting older. Mark writes it down for future generations of the church. But it's not Peter's story. It is not a, you know, a personal biography of the person of Peter. It is Peter's telling of the person of Jesus. And I think the danger, the reason that Mark is written down, that you could make the gospel into something else, is a perpetual danger in the church. It is too easy at times to simply take a verse here and a verse there, to take a few good thoughts and a few inspirational quotes, to fit them all together and into an entirely new image of who Jesus says that he was. It's like coming up on a beautiful mosaic. You know what a mosaic is? Those are those pieces of art in the ancient world made of tiny stones. And the stones are assembled in such a way that you can see a picture of a king. But somebody comes up and they smash it and they take out all the little jewels and they build them into an image that they would rather have in their living room. Irenaeus talking about some guys who are trying to use the gospel for 
other purposes, talks about it as trying to take a picture of a king and putting it together into the shape of an ass or a donkey, depending on your translation. And the same thing happened in the second century. So this is the early 100s. People began to say, do we really need four Gospels? Isn't that a little bit, you know, overkill? Have you ever thought that? I mean, four Gospels. There's like one Quran and there's four Gospels. Like, why do we have four? And they don't entirely agree with each other. And if you think that you are the first person who's ever noticed this on the planet, I have, I have good news for you. Um, they noticed it when they were writing it down. Like, there's people in the early church that notice every single verse that is slightly different than the other one. Like, in Mark's Gospel, for example, in chapter 8, he's healing this blind guy, Bartimaeus, on the road uh, to Jerusalem. And Jesus has, like, a, sec- a two-time miracle. I declare you healed! Can you see? And the guy goes, no. Not really that well. It's mostly like trees. Oh, let me try it again. Hold on, I was warming up the first time I was warming up. Now you're healed. Can you see now? Oh, yeah, I can see now. It's a miracle. That's a weird story. (laughs) Uh, Jesus, why do you need two goes at a miracle? And so when Mark and Matthew tells the story of the miracle, there is just the healing of the blind guy. No double miracle business. What in the world is going on? There's stories where in Jesus, in this gospel, this happens, but in this gospel, it's slightly different. And in the early church, they noticed this. And so some writer said, here's what we need to do. What we need to do is get all the gospels together and all the preachers together. And we'll sit in a room and we'll decide we'll make the gospel. So you will take the best parables of Jesus, the best stories of Jesus, the best miracles of Jesus. We're going to put them all together in a super gospel, and that'll be the Bible. No more contradictions, no more two versions of anything. And so they met together to discuss this. But a writer by the name of Irenaeus, along with many others, said to do that would be wrong because these are the words of the apostles And any differences that exist are because the Holy Spirit inspired them to see the story in a certain way. And because these are the testimony of the apostles, if we rewrite it in our own image, it is no longer the image that God's story God wishes to tell. It becomes my story of Jesus. The Jesus film was a famous evangelistic tool used back in the 70s by campus crusades and when I say back in the 70s, it's also used up until, like, now. Um, you can We've actually taken it to places and showed it, the Jesus film. Has anyone seen the Jesus film? The old Jesus film? All right, so you've done the Jesus film. Nancy, you remember taking the Jesus film places? The sheet and the screen with the projector and the whole thing? So when the Jesus film is made, it's made by people from which country? Can anyone guess? Which country is it made from? The U.S. All right, so it's made by campus crew. It's made by the U.S. Okay, so how many of Jesus' stories about poor people and poverty are included in the Jesus film? The answer is none of them. They They left those out. They weren't considered significant. So the rich man and Lazarus doesn't make it into the Jesus film. Uh, right? All make it into the Jesus film. Uh, it just wasn't seen as very relevant. Now, isn't that weird, though, that a country with incredibly wealthy people is making a story about Jesus and leaves out all the ones about rich people struggling to get into heaven. Isn't that weird? I worry sometimes. 
There is a perpetual danger of the church. And there's nothing wrong with the story. And the Jesus film accomplished many great things. But the danger becomes when we move away from the story of the apostles, the story Mark tells, the story Matthew tells, the story John tells, the story Luke tells, we run the danger of recreating a Jesus in our own image to make him what we wish that he was. In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is a fiery character. He walks into rooms and doesn't wait for a fight. He starts fights. Jesus goes and he confronts the Pharisees directly. Jesus is ready to overthrow the powers that be and to declare the kingdom of God is at hand. The disciples in Mark's Gospels are utterly foolish to the point that it's almost hard to follow the story. And yet this is the story that Mark tells. This is the beginning of the good news. It is the beginning of the good news because first sermon declaring the story of Jesus, that for you is when the good news began. Yes, there is some value in the stories of the birth of Jesus, and we love a good Christmas card as much as the next guy, but all of us began a journey with Jesus at some point when somebody stood up and said, this is what the gospel means, and Mark is saying, let me tell you that story once again. It is a story where we allow ourselves to fall into it. So here is what you need to do in your devotional reading. The text, and if you want to follow with the commentary, um, it's helpful because he uses a new translation. He does his own translation in every section. Um, So it just gives you a little bit of a different reading in case you're overly familiar with, uh, with the words. But when you're reading through the text, I want you to read it in such a way that you reimagine the story as it takes place. To picture yourselves there standing, listening to the testimony of today's text of John the Baptist. Imagine yourself as the friend being lowered through the roof. Imagine yourself in the story entry, the story of the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000, the woman who is uh, bleeding and she is healed on the way to heal Jairus's daughter. Put yourself into the story and allow it to be a living word in you. For when we say God's word is living and active, we mean that God's word was never meant to be text on a page. It was always meant to be his spirit enacting in you his word, which will accomplish what it set out to accomplish if you allow it. If you allow God's word into your heart, it can do all that he said it will do. And so we're going to read this story. In all of its wiriness and all of the times that Mark will say, and then immediately, and immediately, and immediately, and immediately, driving us from one scene of Jesus to the next. And here's how it starts. As it is written in the prophet Isaiah, I will send my messenger ahead of you. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make paths straight for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And the whole Judean countryside and all of the people of Jerusalem went out to see him, confessing their sins. And they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. We need to extend Mark a little license here. All the people of Jerusalem. But we know, even from the story that follows, well, not not everybody. But anybody who was anybody knew that what John was saying was right. Even the Pharisees that come out in John's gospel to hear John the Baptist know something's going on. 
Something is starting that needs attention. Why does he go down there to the Jordan River? It's because that is the place where Israel uh, came into the promised land. That, in a sense, is the beginning of Israel's story within Israel. When they first took possession as a nation of the land. And John is saying, it is time to go back to the beginning. And when we say all of Jerusalem went out, it means that all of Jerusalem knew that something about what they were in right now was not right. It didn't take a rocket scientist to look out and say, gosh, something about this system is broken. You see, in the time of the first century, the guy who claimed to be king, Herod, king of the Jews, was elected by Rome, and he's only half Jewish by marriage. He's Idumean, actually. And the high priest that's around is not a high priest. The right selection process of the temple, it's because he got a political appointment from the party. He's a member of the party, and so they made him the high priest, and that makes him God's authorized representative. Is there something about this first century that is starting to sound a little familiar? The politics of the day had become so corrupt that the people around said, God surely must act. If God cares at all, God must do something about it. It seems like something about the situation is utterly broken. And to be, and more to the point, not only was there political unrest in Jesus' day, but there was continuous religious unrest. Movement after movement of people who were agenda to lead people for this revolution. In fact, in just 5 AD, five years after the birth of Jesus, there's a revolution that is put down and people are killed because they refuse to pay taxes and soldiers are sent in and people are killed. It's referenced in the book of Acts when they say, let's not worry about this Jesus movement. Remember what happened last time? They followed a bunch of guys out in the desert. They all died and then it was over. You see, in Jesus' day, many people stood up and declared, I have a message in the name of God, and yet many were frauds. They were hucksters. Rome was filled with people selling magical trinkets and items and idols and magic potions and spells, things to help enhance your business, your love life, your married life, have the right children, get rid of your enemies, magic for sale to the highest bidder, such that when Paul disturbs the business of Ephesus, even a little bit, a riot in the city breaks out. That is how intense the market around magic had become in the days of Jesus. Between political unrest and religious impersonation, there it, things are a mess. Such that God sends a prophet to get things ready. Somebody that was above reproach that could not be claimed to be part of the systems. You see, most preachers in the world and most prophets that have ever existed quickly get cozy with the people in power. And so if you live in Babylon during exile and they worship Marduk, the priests of Marduk have quarters that also exist at the temple palace. He can go out and tell the king, Oh yes, mighty king, you were elected by Marduk and you are flawless and wonderful and holy and right. For that's what prophets do in the ancient world. They tell political leaders that they're great. If you're in Rome and you talk about Caesar Augustus, he is the bringer of peace and the giver of prosperity. The back of his coin say, Caesar Augustus, son of God, proclaimer and salvation. That's what prophets do in most places in the world. 
they say what the people in power want to hear. But the people of Israel have a different kinds of prophets. Remember the story of Elijah who comes into king after king and says, let me tell you a story. He goes into the king right after Ahab and says, do you think that uh, there's no God in Israel? You will not wake up tomorrow, says Elijah. And then he walks out. In another place, he says, there will be no rain for three years to the king because you have followed far from God. The prophets in Israel have no positive relationship between people in power. In fact, Elijah is known as, who are you, O troubler of Israel? You agitator, you problem maker. And that's why when you see John the Baptist, he's wearing camel hair, he's eating locusts and honey. John takes a bribe from no one, right? John is unbribable. Because locusts are free, and God makes the honey. So like, there's nothing you can give to John that says, Hey, John, I got a nice house for you in town. John says, I don't use houses, and I don't need your clothes, and I don't like your food, so let me tell you what God really cares about. John is unbribable, and he got no family, which means he is unintimidatable. John alone gets arrested because of uh, telling Herod Agrippa that his marriage is inappropriate. He married his brother's wife, and um, all the people of Israel know that this is uh, outlawed in the Old Testament, and so John the Baptist opposes it, and John the Baptist can do it because he has no business that can be repossessed. He has no family that can be arrested. John the Baptist is untouchable. So he goes out and he's preaching a baptism of repentance to make straight the way for the Lord. While your sin does not keep God from loving you, your sin can keep you from hearing God. Let me say that one more time. While your sin does not keep God from loving you, God loves you and pursues you. Your sin can keep you from being able to hear God. You can become so enslaved to your sin and your habits that you're no longer looking for God's intervention, that when God does show up, you no longer hear his voice calling your name. And so the testimony of John the Baptist is make straight the way for the Lord. You need to clean house. Not to get things impressive so that God will look down and say, oh my goodness, you people really clean this place up. But so that when the king shows up, you don't you put your chips on the right square you put your investments in the right stock you put your power behind the right name make straight the way for the lord so we're heading into this time of preparation in easter and this time of preparation is really about making space so that we can see more clearly It is about getting rid of habits that no longer belong, those habits of uh, sin, whether they are thoughts that you know you have needed to get rid of for a while, negative thoughts about yourself and other people that are keeping you awake at night, that are dominating your thinking when you wake up, that are fueling your anxiety on social media. This maybe is a season for you where you said enough is enough is enough. It's time to make straight the way for the Lord. I'm clearing out my phone this month. I'm deleting some apps this month because I need to make some space for a better voice. I need to make some space for the right king. I am going to declare that this next month I am not going to watch in the evening movies that display people living together and doing things that I know are not appropriate for the life of a Christian that are romances written by people who are not basing their romance on anything other than capitalism. They have nothing to do with God's word. I will not watch that any longer. I'm making room. I'm straightening things out. 
But don't, but hear me right. This is not a repentance about saying I'm going to fix my life before God shows up. This is simply about clearing your mind so that you can listen to the gospel for yourself. So that you can hear the story of Jesus speaking into your own life. But it, make no mistake, it is good news. It is not news meant to inspire terror in your life. It is not news that is meant to make you feel guilt and shame. It is uh, news that is meant to remove guilt. It is news that is meant to remove shame. It is news that is meant to liven you and bring you back to the place that God called you to. Here's what it says. John wore clothing made of camel hair. suit, actual camel hair. With a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. John looks nothing like Herod. There's no purple cloth, no fancy clothes, and no fancy food. Maybe for you, this season of getting things ready is going to look more like John the Baptist, cutting out some luxury that isn't necessarily bad and in and of itself, but can become a terrible distraction. This is a season when Christians have often given up eating excess meat. Or, and it's not because meat is sinful. It's because the more we participate in luxury, at times, the more we can ignore the social evils that are taking, on, uh, taking place around us. The more we participate in luxury, the more we can grow cold-hearted to the needs of those around us. dinner, the more self-conscious you are about sharing it. Am I right? Right? The fancier your dinner the more you get real nervous if somebody else wants some. The cheaper your dinner is, the more it's not that big of a deal if somebody else wants some. Am I right? And the story of John the Baptist, the reason it's here at the beginning, and the church has come back to this before Easter time and again, it is not because feasting is wrong. In fact, Jesus feasts. The disciples feast with Jesus. Jesus is eating all the time. There's nothing wrong with joy and celebration. In fact, the life of a Christian is one of joy. However... If you're living at a time such as us, in a country such as ours, where injustice is reaching levels that they will write about and you will tell your grandkids about, then there's sometimes some need for some space between all the hustle to get ahead, to protect, and to enhance our own way of living. There has sometimes been need in the church's history not to hit ourselves with a stick and say, woe is me, woe is me, woe is me. But to say, you know, I don't need as much as I, as I sometimes think I do. You know, I could be happy with a lot less. In fact, I could be way happier with a lot less. I could be healthier with a lot less. My doctor would be happy if I ate a lot less. You know, there's been times in the church's history where they say the message of John the Baptist is a reminder that when we are surrounded in times such as ours, learning to live on less is part of what it means to listen to the gospel story because it makes us better able to share, to participate, to listen. We are less distracted. We are less selfish. We do not want to find ourselves in the shoes of the rich young ruler in this story who hears the testimony of Jesus and goes away, goes away sad because he has many possessions. And so he ultimately never follows Jesus. The story of John the Baptist is one that calls us as we prepare for Easter to take stock on perhaps this is a time where you say, this month I'm giving up, and I'm, and I'm not saying this mockingly, but, but maybe you just say, if you're a person that loves chocolate and eats chocolate every day, this is my season of chocolate-free living. Chocolate's not bad, but I don't need it to survive. You might even say, I'm, I'm going to wash me now because this could get back to haunt me. You might even give up coffee for a season. 
I didn't, don't quote me on that. You could. I'm not saying you had to, all right? So if you see me drinking coffee, I'm not going to hell. But maybe you could say, you know, I could get by without it. I know we, you know, I bring it in and I import it and we buy it, but I could probably survive without it. All the things that we think we need, that we're anxious about losing. John tells us this, though. That moment of preparation is not the be-all and end-all. We're not getting our life straight, and that's the end of the story. We're not trying to make a little space because we're getting ourselves together for the best life you can live. It's not about a few better habits. It is only to make space because the one who comes after me is more powerful than I, and uh, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. If this season is nothing but a season of repentance, a little bit of I'm cleaning up house, I'm trying to start a few good habits for you, then that is not a gospel story. Right, The one who is coming, John, the, the moments where we make space is only because the person who is coming, the one that we center our lives on, the one that we are listening to is far more powerful than a few changed habits. I baptize you with water, John says, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He will give you God's power. He will give you genuine relationship. He will give you divine intervention. That John the Baptist is a powerful moment of preparation before Easter, but it's not the end of the story. It is only the beginning to make space for God's Spirit to do what He said He will do in you. So as our musicians come forward today, perhaps it is time that we go back to the Gospel of Mark and read it again with fresh eyes. To refocus on this story of Jesus the way Mark tells it. The Jesus who shows up and says uh, parable after parable about what it means to be a disciple. The Jesus who halfway through the gospel starts this road toward the cross and three times he'll explain what his death means to his disciples who are both dunfounded and confused. Over and over again, why would you have to do that? This is a season where we re-listen to the beginning of the good news of the gospel of Jesus. We're going to come down during our service to the time of communion. On my right and on my left are two stations here. The juice represents the blood that was shed for you, and the uh, bread represents the body that was broken for you. Nothing about our service would have any power whatsoever. The clever presentations, the great music, the gathering together, none of it would have significance except for the fact that this God told you, my son died for you. And so we can't gather as a church without having this table at the very center. My words would have no authority and our music would get nowhere were it not for the death of Jesus. So during this next song, if you would like to come forward and take communion, uh, if you have a relationship with Jesus, you're welcome to come. If you've never yet been baptized, this would be an excellent season to say, I want to study the gospel for myself. I want to declare that I have faith in Jesus. We would ask that you would talk with myself or Pastor Mark after the service. Would you stand with us as we sing our song?